So, Claire, what do you think about when you think about the future? Well, the future is looking pretty scary at the moment. The economy is screwed, the, the right wing are rising again, the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, as the saying goes. But I'd like to think that we can fight back. And I'd also like to think that First Nations people, having survived everything that's been thrown at us, will survive again. We <laughs> always survive. doesn't matter what the world throws at us, we have survived it. Future Perfect, the Emerging Writers Festival podcast. I'm Izzy roberts the Artistic Director, and we're joined by our guest host for this episode, Hannah Donnelly. Hannah's a writer, DJ, and the creator of Sovereign Track's Indigenous Music Culture blog, which showcases the work of contemporary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. Her work experiments with future tense, speculative fiction, and Indigenous responses to climate change, looking at water systems and cultural flows. This is an excerpt from Long Water, a sound and video work Hannah produced for Yirrimboi First Nations Arts Festival as the Arts House Open Studio resident. Her name is Gilgandere. Standing on the riverbank, she surveys box gum woodland. Counting. Red river gum, yellow box, white box. Today, she will cast her nets to trap drones in the sky. What do you think about when you think about the future? When I think about the future, I think about a place where I can create stories that haven't been colonised by gubbers in the sense that my present is very much controlled by our history. And in this future, I can imagine where we can flip that control I guess I also am romanticizing my own sovereignty but allowing myself to do that because it's a place where we can we can imagine ways that are better for indigenous people. And can you tell us a bit about the guests that you spoke to this episode? So we had in the Deadly Maddie Clark, a researcher doing their PhD in the areas of indigenous futures. And we were also really lucky to have the author Claire G. Coleman uh, to come in and yarn about the book Terra Nullius, Fresh Off the Shelves. First up, Claire G. Coleman, who wrote her black and white fellowship winning manuscript, Terra Nullius, while travelling around Australia in a caravan. Terra Nullius explores an Australia of the near future where we're about to experience colonisation once more. We recorded this episode at Triple R Radio, and during our interview with Claire, Jen Cloa was performing live on air, so there's a little bit of noise in the background. 
Claire, thank you. And we might start off, can I get you to tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe even the places that you've lived and the places that inform where you're at now? I grew up in Perth, which is, well, as you know, in WA. Um, My ancestral country is the south coast of WA, but I've never lived there. I moved to Melbourne in 1995, and then I left Melbourne about five years ago and started travelling around Australia, and since then I've lived everywhere. Mm. And this travelling around Australia, that has been pretty um, influential maybe on your writing? I was travelling around a caravan when when I both came up with the idea for my novel and indeed wrote the first draft in a caravan. That was... People keep asking how I did it. It's actually easier than you think and harder than you think at the same time. It's harder because of pure pragmatics of getting up every morning, working for a bit and then leaving and having to travel somewhere. That makes it really hard, but it's easier because you don't have to go looking for inspiration. Every day is somewhere different. Mm. And so the places that you were are reflected in the way that you write... Definitely. There's um there's places I've been in my novel, not necessarily as themselves. Just like people put their friends as characters without them being their friends anymore, like slightly change them, I've put places in without them quite being the same place. Yeah, environment and its storying as a character. Yes, environment is a character in my novel. Yeah, beautiful. And so can you tell us a little bit about Terra Nullius as a... M- how you might describe in terms of Indigenous futurisms being a bit of a historical fiction with a sci-fi twist? I was trying in writing Terra Nullius to come up with a way to give people who have no idea of what the Indigenous past was some empathy. So I've used a slightly modified version of the hist- of historical fiction, a slightly modified history of Australia in order to do that and I hope it's working. I don't know, I haven't heard from many people read it yet, but the idea was to enable people who haven't experienced colonisation to understand what it's like to experience colonisation. Looking at archives and your work around archives, what kind of drew you to that form? I didn't use archives as such. What I used was close readings of other Aboriginal literature. Because Aboriginal literature has been heavily based on, in memoir and historical fiction for generations. So in order to get a historical context, I studied everyone else's work. Because uh, there's, there's some really, really, really great historical fiction out there. Were there some of those kind of historical, the historical literature that really stood out to you? Rabbit Proof Fence mm. was particularly powerful. I think it's a powerful book anyway. It's, just, it's such a thin little book, but it's so powerful. And Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith is also powerful. Benang by Kim Scott has this amazing incandescent power of words. They'll probably be the ones that stand out to me in my mind the most. Mm. And if we start looking to the form of using future and indigenous futurisms is this something that you've always been interested in doing i've always been interested in speculative and science fiction like since i was very young i i read the lord of the rings when i was eight i soon got addicted to fantasy from there moved to science fiction as people do 
from that moved to Ballard, which is a very powerful... He wrote a lot of very powerful works of speculative fiction. And I've always believed that you can use speculative fiction styles to shed light on things that have been dark or say things that can't be said. Uh, Rod Serling, who wrote May the Twilight Zone, said that he used fantasy and science fiction style because then no one would tell him off for telling the truth, essentially. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he used it because... You don't. You can. You can get away with things you wouldn't be able to get away with. People think you're telling a true story, and that's that's really been the power of speculative fiction from the very beginning. That's what it's been used for. What are you into at the moment? I haven't, to be honest, read that much speculative new speculative fiction for a while. I recently, as always, did another reread of War of the Worlds, which is the classic. And the funny thing about the War of the Worlds is, it's been said that H.G. Wells, when he wrote it was trying to explain why the Tasmanian Aborigines were so quickly invaded by saying, what if someone with superior technology landed in the middle of England? That even was referring to, to the indigenous mob being wiped out. The mm. War of the Worlds was speculative fiction dealing with that topic, which is very interesting. Mm. I read um, the works of Samantha Shannon because I was in a panel with her. They were quite interesting. It's actually interesting how they dealt with British colonialism Again, that's, that seems to be the flavour of the decade, really, um, looking at colonialism through speculative fiction eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Often I think of the future being somewhere that hasn't been colonised yet in some people's imagination, but you've come up with a very different, a very different scenario to that. Well, I think to imagine that, we were, that our history is somehow stable now is foolish because it's ne- society is never completely stable. America could decide to colonise us tomorrow and we couldn't stop them in Australia. We, could, we couldn't do anything about it. It would just wipe us out. A disease could wipe us out tomorrow. Uh, I can't remember where Star Trek got it from, but Star Trek was talking about the future being the undiscovered country. Well, it is. This future is unknown and unknowable. We cannot possibly predict what could happen to us in the future. And I suppose that's the power of speculative fiction. If you set something in the future... You can get away with anything you bloody well want. No one can stop you from making up, creating any world you want to say what you want to say. Absolutely. So I'm surrounded by a lot of young mob that are really, really interested in speculative fiction. And what do you say to young mob that are looking at using future, futurisms in their work or to create meaning in their life? Well, for a start, it's a very powerful tool and you shouldn't be afraid to use it. People think of Aboriginal people as an ancient culture, but we're a living culture. And as I said in a panel at the Melbourne Writers Festival, when someone asked, why dystopia? And my answer was, Aboriginal people don't have to imagine a dystopia, we live in one. Every day, every day when the mob go out, they're facing a dystopia. There's certainly power in just using futurism or speculative fiction just to point out the dystopia we already live in. Just describing it is enough. Absolutely. Maybe the apocalypse has already happened for us in a way. Still happening. It's still happening every day. Is there a future for Indigenous futurisms to become much more of a dominant conversation within our own community? Well, I think if anybody produces um, Indigenous futurists or, or speculative fiction work, and if they put enough effort and and time and passion into it. I don't see why it can't become a powerful cultural artistic force in Australia. There's, there's no reason why it can't work. It worked for me. I got a novel published. 
and I'm still in a bit of shock about that. But it did work, and it could work for other people as well. And certainly, I've heard that some publishers are looking for more Aboriginal content now. There are publishers out there who really want to get more Aboriginal stories. And the important thing to remember, though, is no one should ever try and do art in the belief that it's going to, they're going to get to publish it or produce it or in the belief it's going to make them money because that will never, ever, ever work. Yeah. The important thing is do it out of the love of it. Mm-hmm. And that's, all, that's the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, Claire, I'm also interested in the way that you might think about your own sovereignty in your book, Terra Nullius, mm-hmm. or how, what methodology you use to think about that in using speculative fiction. Well, I think the whole idea was of idea behind Terra Nullius was to, to build a world in which I can question the invasion of Australia. That was the whole purpose. That was the entire point of the project from the beginning. So it was engaging with the sovereignty of, of our people and the invasion of our continent was embedded into the story from the first moment I started writing it. I didn't really have to engage with it. It was more trying to work out a way to express it than trying to engage yeah. with, with, with sovereignty and with the invasion. Yeah. And is there anything else you'd like to reflect on or have any thoughts? Well, there is, there is one, which is um, the black and white... Indigenous Writing Fellowship, which I which I received, that project is not just to encourage Aboriginal writers; it's also encourage Aboriginal editors. And I was talking to the um, Aboriginal editor traineeship I had, which is uh, Grace, and we we're talking about how when you're talking about a, something to an Aboriginal editor, you don't have to explain sovereignty, the invasion, all those things. They know. So like, when you're trying to explain to a white editor why you did something, they, you have to explain the entire history. You know, and some of those things you don't have to explain to an Aboriginal editor at all. And the Black and White Project is, has been in hiatus, but it's starting up again. So if anyone's got an idea, I encourage them to try and write it in time to submit for the Black and White Prize. Because, yeah, that's what I did. I was working on it and I rushed to complete my draft in order to get it in for that prize and then won. So I, I would encourage people to submit to prizes, submit to everything. Don't, don't be afraid. Fear doesn't get you anywhere. Being afraid just makes the the people who don't want to hear your voice win. Absolutely. Um, and that's so such a valid point in terms of editors and having to kind of work twice as hard in that process and yeah. the onus is on you in that circumstance, unfortunately, yes, to be is. providing some education. We should not have to, as First Nations people, we should not be required to educate every white person in Australia. But so far we have been. And we're going to continue to be, but the more that that can be done en masse at once, the better. So if someone can do a novel, a TV show, or a movie, an album, anything that would explain some of these issues without having to do it on a one-to-one basis, that is that can only be a good thing because that makes it a lot easier. <laughs> Explaining to each person individually is just too difficult. Let's hope everyone reads Terra Nullius. I hope so. Terra Nullius is out now through Hachette. So go out and grab a copy from your local bookshop or order it online through the Hachette website. Next, we hear from Maddie Clark 
who's currently writing their PhD on Indigenous speculative fiction and futurism. Maddie, if you can just start by telling me a little bit about yourself, what you're doing in Melbourne at the moment. It's, it's nearly my 10-year anniversary with Melbourne. I came from a town outside Geelong, Queenscliff. It's very small um, and very quiet and it's on Wadawurrung country and it is, yeah, when I, when I came to Melbourne, it was to go to uni. I got a scholarship to the University of Melbourne. It was kind of an opportune time for me because I was having like a bit of a, like a difficult home situation at the time. So I was like, this is my, this is my life raft. So I came to Melbourne and I kind of, yeah, I just never ended up leaving. How I got to the the PhD that I'm in right now is that I started to become really interested in not only like literature, like, cause I guess mostly what I'm working with in literature at the moment, but about how indigenous like art makers as well were, were working with both the past and the future. What sort of set it off was, looking at some of, I think, you know, Fiona Foley, her mm. work and some of the the sort of portraiture work that she did with herself, placing herself into sort of these like historical scenarios and just becoming really obsessed with that method of, you know, almost like defamiliarising is a term that you can use lots in like speculative fiction, like w- the past and putting yourself in it. And I think something that her work is has really like done really powerfully is like retelling or inserting narratives into history that have not have been disappeared. So... The idea of doing that with the future has been like super, super exciting to me for like years and years. So that's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm working with and thinking about mostly the future. And writing your PhD at the moment. Yeah. You've kind of really narrowed in on a particular, is it a time frame of looking at Indigenous future texts? Yeah, I think... If you are writing a thesis, I discovered I'm not very good at writing thesis, like writing a thesis. A thesis is like a very particular format in like Western institutions that has been really, really confounding for me. But it's like the more specific you can be, the easier it becomes for you, because if you if you have a really broad field, you go crazy. Right. So what I ended up doing with the thesis is focusing on sort of the period between 2011 or 2010 and 2015, pretty much only looking at texts by Aboriginal women about the future, but it was always like the near future. So looking at the next hundred years and that's where I found the most, yeah, been able to go into the most detail, Mm. I guess. And uh, can you tell us what those texts are? Yeah. So, and there's even a couple that I've had to leave out because Mm. that time period has been so dense, full of like futurist stuff. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So like I had to leave out a couple of things because I was like, I just am not going to have time or space to do that. I had to leave out um, Amberlynn Quay Mullina, her trilogy, right? So The Tribe series. Yeah, the yeah. Tribe series. I was like, it's too big. I can't, you know, I can't look at it. I can't go into it. But I'm doing The Swan Book by Alexis Wright. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing Dory Water by Ellen Van Neven. And I'm also looking at the text by Nicole Watson. So she wrote a text set in 2035. Um, right. Yeah. So it's actually, it's not, it's not strictly like a, this is the thing about genre, right? So it's not really easy to, to say what genre this text is. It's because she's a lawyer and she wrote a judgment that's set in the future. And it was a judgment of a case that happened in 1935. And it was a murder trial in Arnhem Land. And it was the murder of a policeman by an Aboriginal man, a white policeman by an Aboriginal man who was then tried for murder, convicted, but then on appeal was acquitted based on, I think, the prejudice of the judge, which was, I think, kind of came to light after the trial had ended. So he was acquitted and then he disappeared. So she rewrote that case as an alternative judgment format 
but set it in the future. Um, I don't know if you know much about alternative judgment format. Basically, it's a feminist method that's come from the UK. Mm-hmm. It comes from feminist law and it's about, you know, trying to understand the role of a judge in the in the justice system and whether or not the judge can become feminist within the context of the justice system. Mm-hmm. It's a teaching method. They ask, st- like, students of the law, who like feminist students of the law, to um, take a case, a historical case that's already happened, Sometimes they'll use like abortion cases, um, sexual assault cases, like, you know, they'll do all these kind of experiments and they'll be like, can you rewrite this case to be more feminist in 1960? Do you know what I mean? So like they tried to do this, like they they asked Nicole Watson, the Australian editors um, of a feminist alternative judgments project, asked Nicole Watson to do that with this, um, this murder trial in, in Arnhem Land. And she said, I can't, I can't do that. It's not possible to both kind of consider this case within that time and place and also come up with some kind of feminist alternative. Um, And the story behind that was that the reason why the policeman had been killed by this man is because he had abducted and sexually assaulted an Aboriginal woman who was part of his clan. And so she was like, it's not possible for me to to produce a feminist outcome within the law of Australia, basically. And so she rewrote the case uh, in 2035 and she sets sets it up as like, it's, it's it, there's a Republic of Australia instead of a Commonwealth of Australia and it has there's a confederacy of Aboriginal nations and they have made a treaty between them and one of the acts of the treaty is the decolonisation of the legal system and she rejudges the case from there. So she's positioning the sovereignty of the, the, the law as being in our control or...? Yeah, I think... One of, the, one of the big changes that she makes in the future is that the law is really like the processes of the law are embedded in storytelling mm-hmm. um, and reparative justice. So uncovering the narratives of violence in that the law has done and acknowledging the law as violent in itself and deeply rooted in dispossession and a tool of dispossession and something that enables and um, is enabled by the violence of everyday life against Aboriginal people. So her sort of solution to that is that the law is now like a, a conscious living kind of storytelling place, a platform of um almost like a meeting ground of sovereignties. So in terms of Indigenous futurism as a as a thing, and you kind of mentioned that there was so much to work with within that time frame, mm. um, and I feel like it's growing. Yeah. And it's like becoming part of everything that I exist within in terms of art and music mm-hmm. and um, or what all these young blackfellas are doing at the moment. Mm. What do you reckon that draw is? I think that... Yeah, like while we can sort of see the symbols or the images that we associate with futurism in culture, in a way like, you know, I guess utopianism and futurism has always existed. Um, it's always been a part of colonisation. That's something that I've kind of been sort of thinking about for quite a while. But it's I think that it it exists necessarily in every political future building movement in a way. Like you have to be able to imagine a future to be mo- to be acting in the present, right? And that's what makes futurism so interesting um, is that kind of active articulation of a future in and the way that it affects the present it's always about the present you know so yeah I think of like you know Annie Melissa Lukashenko saying things like oh you know we haven't always been impoverished we used to live in in great luxury and that time will come again for example you know all of those you know treaty building movements are very futurist in in the in their thinking I think as well like there's all kinds of examples Another thing that strongly comes through and um, would love to get your thoughts on from, from the text that you've looked at in, in the different scenarios that might happen, some of them might be, you know, 
particular end of the world scenarios or end of the Western world or return to our world, however you want to flip it, but also by using our own knowledge systems. Have you come across any kind of really great texts on that? I think that there's like um, a really big difference between uh, so one thing I'm focusing on a lot is like the climate change and what happens to climate like what climate change does in the future in text in Aboriginal text but it's really interesting to see the difference between whitefella representations of the climate change apocalypse where it is like this it's a total fucking disaster right like it's everything ends everything is dissolved and then Aboriginal texts where like climate change happens and things either get better or they keep going they just keep going you know things keep going and it reminds me of um I think Arnie Carolyn, um, Bunwurrung Elder, she said to me, like, said to a group of us once, like, when we're thinking about, we have to think about climate change, we have to think about our responses to climate change and how we survive climate change, but also remember that we survived the Ice Age. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So uh, disaster is not the same in Aboriginal texts as it is in Whitefellow texts, and I think that's been a really interesting point for me to look at. um, And, um, yeah, it's just been something that's become really central to my thinking around this is that how do we deal with this idea of the end of the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and also unta- kind of unpacking that language of climate change, um, which is about the disaster that's going to happen compared with the disaster that's already happened to Aboriginal people and yeah. um, Indigenous people over, all over the world through colonisation and ecological damage. Alexis Wright's Swan Book um, has a really particular particular world that's built around kind of this climate situation Mm. um end of the world scenario yeah and then I feel like in that book it's like in which there is yeah there's this climate change scenario the kind of post-apocalypse scenario but it's like race persists and I feel like in a lot of whitefellow texts race is kind of it's like almost like humans against the world right it's not um yeah, they kind of see it as, as a very unifying or they call border event or something like that. Like we're all kind of united against this this disaster. But I feel like in um, in the climate change future for Indigenous writers, like the, the climate change stuff intensifies the racial hierarchy, right? And sort of almost like highlights the patterns all over again. I got so lost in this one book thinking about that stuff, hey? Yeah. Uh, isn't it great? Mm. Uh, I think there was one bit, I don't know if if it stood out to you, Um, the particular characters, like you felt like you knew them as well. Mm. They were definitely reflecting um, current political and leadership situations for our communities um, in such a clever way. Um, But I think there was somewhere where it was, uh, um, she she wrote post-Indigenous or something referring to a particular leader and I just, I just, I had to stop and think about that for a couple of days. Did you have that moment? I, I did. I had a few moments, yeah, like with, yeah, with that language that she, and just kind of would have to put it down and be like, I'm just going to take the afternoon, you know, and have really emotional responses to it as well. Like, yeah, really strong language and strong, um, like really insightful, like strong insight, I think, um, yeah, man, that it it took no prisoners at mm. all mm. Um, in sort of condemning folks. Yeah, I think condemning everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what kind of uh, what kind of are you focusing on particular areas of that novel in your PhD? What particular themes that you're bringing out? I think I wanted to. Um, there was yeah, there's two things that I wanted to do with with that book, and one was kind of to talk about. Um, the climate change 
um, aspects, like the way it talks about climate change um, and the way it talks about policy. So the kind of repetitiveness of of Australian policy towards Indigenous people um, and how perverse it is. And, um, And I think wanted to really use it to sort of critique I guess the white dialogue on climate change which eliminates race completely um by sort of showing like in in the literature that Aboriginal people produce um if anything race becomes more important under climate change um and it doesn't disappear you know the world doesn't disappear you still have to deal with the reality and you still have to deal with history so um yeah just sort of seeing like that contrast was so sharp to me um that race is central. Race, race has a real primacy in the construction of the future for Indigenous writers. It, it doesn't go away. Um, and the world doesn't go away, really. So um, that's something that stood out really strongly to me in the Swan book. And having kind of read it a couple of times and wanting to cover so much stuff, wanting to respond to so much stuff, I felt that I could only really choose one or two things that kind of suited um, the rest of my project. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I wanted to sort of tie that into what was going on in water as well, where I was like, look, um, yeah, if anything in the future, in this in this particular future, um, yeah, like climate change doesn't bring humans together that intensifies the policy dystopia that's going on for Aboriginal people um, and really ramps it up. So yeah. I thought that was really important dialogue to have with the texts um, and for those texts to have with climate change discourse as it exists now. Um, and I, yeah, like I think um, just loving some of the critiques of, of whiteness going on in those texts really... Yeah, I, I think in Ellen's book, mm. well, it's Heat and Light, but in the water mm. section, um, it, I like it's some. I you kind of think how the how did that idea or the concept of the mangroves mm. as a way of t- telling these stories and reflecting on kind of situations that are happening right now come about? But it just it's done really beautifully. Mm. Um, and what kind of things do you focus on when you're looking at water? Um, I want to, like, something that's really beautiful about that story, I think, is the um, the kind of constant commentary on, like, the human and non-human mm. divide, mm. which I think is really deliberate. Um, and it's so repetitive and it becomes, there's this, there's something to the repetition of it, the constant questioning um, that I find, like, it, it, there's a rhythm almost, you know, in it. And... Um, because I, I st- you know, I'm teaching environmental philosophy with these like indigenous students, like a class of all indigenous students at the moment, and I sometimes like we t- we t- we teach that story, um, but a lot of the time we talk a lot of we talk about you know the human and non-human binary that is really essential to um, the Western Academy and the rationalism and um, the the sort of yeah like rationalist um, what's it called. I guess the the dominance of rationalism that still even comes up now in leftist discourse as well. Um, and I think that that work just does this, it just, it's almost like it, it's so delicate the way that the writing happens, but it just undoes all of that stuff. And the, the kind of, there's a kind of constant, the, the, the narrator is always saying, I feel this, I feel this, I feel this. And it's not, it's not about um, rational, it's not about rationalism at all. And there's a, there's a passage, I think, I'm not sure if you know it, where she's talking about Aristotle. Um, she's sort of saying like, I have to, I'm trying to understand my relationship with this, this mangrove spirit, you know, this plant person. And she's like, to understand, I have to, you know, ask myself a few questions. And one is, what is a human? What is a plant? What is an animal? And the division goes back as far as Aristotle. So I'm like, 
you're consciously undoing the, the basis of all Western knowledge right now in this story. And that's so huge. But it's so, so yeah, but I'm like, it's short. It's 50 something pages long. Um, but yeah, I think that was exceptional. Yeah, um, I was really excited by that. Um, How did the students respond to these works, these younger, deadly students? They were like picking up all these different threads. They were kind of going um, on the native title stuff and they, they didn't know the Tanya Sparkle reference. And I was like, you don't know Tanya Plibersek? And they were like, nah, who's that? You know, um, right. none of them knew the Jessica Malboy reference as well. And I was what? like, hey, this book is not even that old, you know? Um, so they, I think some of the some of the little parodies were lost on them because they didn't have a lot of context. I'm like, you probably don't even remember Julia Gillard that well. Um, but they really responded to um, the themes of like the control of nature. So like the, the idea of like experimentation and the, um, the use of like this kind of population of like ambiguous human non-humans as a metaphor for the treatment of Aboriginal people and the repetition of history. So they loved that stuff. And then they got into, they, when they got stuck into the sort of gender sex stuff, I think some of them were a little bit spun out, but eventually, yeah, they came at it with a real complex kind of analysis, which I was really happy with. Um, it was super fun. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so are there any other um, books that you're reading at the moment or any other Indigenous future work that you're really into? I read one recently. It was it's actually a Canadian book and it was published last year. It's called Love Beyond Body, Space and Time and it's a collection of First Nations um, LGBT short stories. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you read it? I haven't read it. Yeah, it's, it's very good. Um and it's um, it's got a, a short story in there by Daniel Heath Justice I really enjoyed, but then there was one, God, I can't remember her name. But, yeah, there's a couple of just really good trans narratives in there that I just got so stuck into. Um, and, yeah, it was it's, it's, kind of a sh- it's kind of a small book, but, yeah, I really, really loved that one. Um, read it in a day mm-hmm. when I was in Toronto, like, last month or something. Um, just kind of sped through it at the library and... Have you have you ever read um, Walking the Clouds, an, an anthology of Indigenous science fiction? I have a copy of it. That's a Grace Dillon. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. I have a copy of that. I just managed to get a copy when I was in North America, but I couldn't get it while I was here. I couldn't order it to my house. Um, but I really, I, like, I'm, I wish I'd brought back more copies with me. I was like hauling back like extra ten kilos of luggage. See, we just need to make more connections, and <laughs> it's happening. It's happening, right? Yeah, it was actually really hard to get it. Even in Canada, I was like, I had to um, fill out like a mail order form to get it to like sent to my house. Um, but it's yeah, it's cool. I'll have to lend it to you. Um, Absolutely, because she coined the term Indigenous Futurism. Yes, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's where I was. Um, I first came across that from. Um, looking and researching um, Canadian texts and mm-hmm. came across Grace Dillon. And so that was back in 2003 or something, that mm. book, or perhaps the kind of the way that they started talking about Indigenous futurism. Mm. Um, but do you have a particular, like this is a really rough question, <laughs> um, but do you have a particular, like I go between thinking of sovereign futures or Indigenous futurisms or what people call speculative fiction. It's mm. hard to really... Uh, really categorize it like a, a, a genre word. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah no I, I say indigenous futurism because I feel like it's the most inclusive of everything I'm like it's about the future it's it imagines the future yeah. so it's indigenous futurism um yeah and I guess not all futures are sovereign futures exactly necessarily and 
yeah, it's like you said, like the genre stuff, it's so people get picky and weird about the genre stuff. They're like science fiction, utopia, speculative fiction, dystopia, all these things have really fine points to them or something like that. But I don't really mess with that stuff. I feel like a lot of indigenous writers don't have don't adhere very well to genres. It's like just a story. Yeah, it's story. And imagining futures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's relational. It's not it doesn't belong to one or the other. And I think Nicole Watson's text really broke me with that because I was like, this is what is this? You know, it's it's a it's a legal text, but it's a it's a story as well. And so um, and it's a science fiction in, a, in its own way. So, yeah, you have to be flexible with that stuff. Um, and the Academy is not very flexible. <laughs> no. Mm. Um, so wonderful to mm. hear all of your knowledge on this. And it's just, it's growing. And um, I really can't wait till you finish your PhD. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Maddie and Hannah were having such a great conversation. Maddie decided to flip the mic and interview Hannah as well. You made a zine called Sovereign Apocalypse and you made a zine Sovereign Apocalypse 2. And I I read both of those and I'm actually going to be teaching one of them in a lecture about media futures in two weeks to a class of like media, like random media students who I've never met, all non-indig. And I'm really excited to see how it goes. Um, And... I want to know, like, what was your, like, what, how did you get to writing that zine? Um, What was your inspiration? So there was um, two co-editors in Mm. that process, um, artist Gabby Briggs Mm. and myself. And we had been talking for so long about wanting to do this zine and um, not really doing it. Um, I... And I think we were just, um, I guess if I look back to then and what I thought about Sovereign Apocalypse and now what I what I think about it is very different as well. Um, I was very obsessed with Apocalypse. We were both very obsessed with this idea of um, romant- well, romanticising sovereignty is... is um, a way of us kind of not thinking about all of the really hard, messed up shit that was going on at the time and how intangible that might seem to young blackfellas. And instead of thinking about the the processes and the agreement-making processes and treaty processes that we'd have to go through, we were like, why don't we just start there where we've got what we want and um, then we'll work from there. And, yeah, it's so it was so such a good process to get other people to come in and contribute to the zine. Um, it was pretty low-key. I feel like we didn't really know what we were doing. We just, like, tried to do something and create something um, and have these conversations. And um, we – and then I think in the second one we were looking more at some of those space conversations um, thematically uh, that kind of – maybe didn't come through the way that we thought they would. But I feel like, I don't know if you would have a sense of this, but I feel like my thinking around the sovereign apocalypse as a concept, like now I look back on it and think it was a little bit, a little bit of a baby thought. I don't know. I think there's so much value in those 
those thoughts. I think there's so much. Yeah, it's it's true. Like I feel like it's it's that raw material or something, you know. Yeah, that's really what it was. Like mm. it re- like we weren't really. Um, there was there's so many other artists and writers that were uh, have talked about all of the things that we talked about in the zine, but we were just really like. Um, trying things out, creating, getting other people to contribute and really not um, referencing many other people and just like really, I don't know. It sounds like it was really driven by like despair but yeah. also lots of conversations. Yeah. Like a meeting of, yeah, of like you two having lots of ideas together. Absolutely. And there was a lot of like uh, I remember there was like a lot of like interesting kind of fashion stuff going on in in one of those. It really was. Mm. Um, a lot of it was uh, um, looking at um, using. Uh, I think we had a lot of casuarina nuts, um, uh, a lot of gungaroo gum nuts, a lot of weaving, and it was I guess around the the idea of using our own practices to create this sovereign style of what might be the aesthetic of a lot of futurist kind of things, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of Indigenous futures do and especially a lot of kind of Indigenous futurism aesthetics do look at. Um, it is um, incorporating our own practices that are living practices and incorporating like um, cultural adornment that is part of um, where we come from and what we're surrounded by as well. Mm, like survivance of practice into yeah. the future. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I saw some of that come through with, um, uh, I think, Nayuka and Paul wrote a piece about uh, plant propagation, like propagation in the future. And that was so, that seemed so inspired to me as well, um, of like creating connections with the living, the living past through an engagement with the earth. Um, and doing so to sort of like undo a lot of like kind of colonial binaries as well. Um, what questions did you ask of contributors to get them to talk to you? Like it, it, the- it was actually um, something similar that you kind of touched on mm. around uh, if you could think of um, 100 years in the future, how you would describe what you're doing right now mm. um, and how how would you describe that particularly to an Indigenous audience in that future mm-hmm. um, and what does that future look like and how can you articulate what's happening to you right now? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess stumbled upon like a pretty solid framework for like thinking about those things in terms of um, centering like your your audience as this future Indigenous audience um, as a way of thinking about things instead of really and like layers of access that are within that as well. But, um, yeah, that's something that I've continued um, in all of the things that I've done pretty much since that zine. And it's, yeah, and it seemed like a real, like even the idea of the pricing being like for non-mob and mob being different and like then alongside that your music practice, like your DJ practice coming out of that being like very, you know, there was nothing like it at the time. Like uh, there still isn't really anything like it of just being like, this is just Blackfella music from Australia, trying to be as local as possible and bringing that to the, you know, whatever space you were in at the time. Um I guess I have lo- I have lots of questions about what you've been doing since, but I also just want to know quickly like what is the res- what is what was the response? Ah, oh, 
I was so surprised at the uh, so that Sovereign Apocalypse zine. We just thought that we'd be like selling a few to our friends, and we like we sold out of two prints, and people still request it for archives or um, things to this day, really. Um, so the response was like really amazing, and. Um, I feel like I, I was really able to make a lot of connections with other mob that were thinking about the same things and able to have really critical conversations um, around all of these themes that we were looking at as well. And the Sovereign Track scene, yeah, like it, it really blew up after the Sovereign Apocalypse scene as well. Uh, and, you know, that was part of it. It was music is part of Indigenous futurism as well. Um, all of the stories that are told in this music and using this form, um, yeah, it's so I see it as like hand in hand with um, everything else that I'm doing. Yeah, and I see that you've also been doing. You've got some new projects on the go involving sound and featuring featuring with sound. Um, something yeah, I was speaking with Ellen Van Van Even like a couple of. Oh, maybe last week or something like that. And she said, you know, there are all these different types of Indigenous story. There is rap music, there's music, there's all these different, you know, forms of poetry and, and writing and, um, and and novel writing and all these formats of the Indigenous story, you know, that use Indigenous story and to incorporate, I think, uh, you know, Indigenous hip hop into what, like, it, I almost see the two as kind of, kind of married in a way. Like you mm, had this, these right, two projects right. going at the same time and I'm like, they're building something together you know yeah do you feel that yeah absolutely um i think the the future the way of the way that music can tell the future um and the way that we can tell the future through our words as well um written words of visually as well it is yeah there's a i guess if you look at it's um it's a movement yeah of all these young mm -hmm. mob and a lot of the a, a very accessible way of them telling that story is music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what so like what are you working on right now? Aside from this podcast. <laughs> Aside from this podcast. Well, um, still doing um, sound and story. Um, really. Uh, not tied down to writing in a particular kind of publication outcome. Um, so working with field recordings and sound and, and then narrative and storytelling over the top of that in in kind of future storytelling. Um, it's been a big year for me learning about that, um, learning um, about how to uh, do sound properly myself. And so that's like field recordings, mixing, creating, um, yeah. Yeah, and from what I can tell, that stuff is extremely laborious. Yeah. Um, and you're in contact with the sound quite a lot of the time. You record the sound yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've been doing a bit of like kind of um, recordings of water. Yeah. Is that uh, what, yeah. something you've been working on quite a lot recently? Yeah, future water. So, yeah, and um, a lot of the places where I might be telling a, f a future story about, um, if it's the place or a character in that place, I'll go to that place and do a field recording of the water in that area and then whether it's like used in a manipulated way so you're not sure that it is water or just um incorporating different sound elements into that story um that's where i'm at you said character mm. you have characters like you're building characters building characters yeah yeah, yeah. you don't want to do you want to share 
are they still are they still baking? Uh still yeah, still baking. But this this particular one, um, Kilgandre, was from Longwater, mm. um, a sound and audio piece that I worked on this year. But it, she's part of a bigger story, um, but not necessarily a person. Um, whether it's, um, I guess I'm really interested in looking at what. Um, sovereign AI would look like in the future and how um, how that kind of looking after country and um, whether going so far into the future what we would be doing with technology, Indigenous technologies and would, um, we have Indigenous artificial intelligence um, doing some of those um, caring for country practices, I don't know. That's really interesting. I think, yeah, the idea of, um, so someone actually asked me, I think earlier this week, in a, in a class setting, like, what, what is sovereignty? And I, I kind of thought, fuck, I really don't know how to answer that question. That's a really big one. But that, yeah, that word seems really central to, and the idea of sovereign AI is like something really, something really different, something really new and different that I think, um, I'd love to hear you talk about, but like, what does sovereign mean in your work, and what does it mean in, more broadly to you? Mm. I think it's obviously in the t- <laughs> when you look back at it, it's like the title of everything is sovereign apocalypse, mm. sovereign tracks, and at that time, it was um, very important to um, think about the future in a way where we were positioning ourselves to be in control in that future, Mm. um, where that future hadn't been colonised yet. And even though sovereign is still an English word that doesn't necessarily have the meaning that I'm trying to um, associate with it, which is not necessarily like literal title to land or sovereignty um, uh, in agreement making, it might be more um, internal and returning um, returning to uh, returning to that place where it is the utopia for us in the future. This is so fun. I want to keep talking forever. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Nah. Yeah. Nah. That was good. That yeah, was good. Yeah, it was really yeah. good. find links to all the great recommends in this episode in the show notes on SoundCloud. From the Emerging Writers Festival, the Digital Writers Festival is back in 2017. Whether you're into podcasts or poetry, fanfic or specfic, if you're interested in the future of storytelling, this online first festival is for you, wherever you are. We'll be releasing content and streaming events through the DWF website. Log on and tune in to join the conversation from the 24th of October until the 3rd of November. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their new EP, Songs in Your Name. You can find them on Facebook as Huntley Music. Thanks to Triple R Radio for giving us access to their studios. Community broadcasting is such an important space for emerging voices and we're really grateful to be part of this community. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge the First Nations, first storytellers and traditional owners of this land. 
We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, 